This morning we are going to be in the New Testament book of 1 Peter. The New Testament book of 1 Peter. In particular, we're going to be in the third chapter of the first epistle Peter wrote. 1 Peter chapter number 3. We're going to read one verse in uh, chapter number 3. And we're going to find here that as Peter is writing in 1 Peter chapter number 3, he's talking here about our Christian conduct. And he specifically alludes with the text verse that we're going to read. He alludes to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter number 8 and verse number 13. And our text verse this morning is found in verse number 15 of 1 Peter chapter number 3. 1 Peter chapter number 3, verse number 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house today. Lord, we ask you that you would meet with us and Lord, help us as we dive into the scriptures today to rightly divide your word. Help us, Lord, as always, to approach your service in your house, the worship that you've commanded us, that you rightly get through the New Testament church. And Lord, our conduct, may it be with meekness and fear. May we always be ready to give an answer uh, as it relates to the salvation that we have so graciously received and everything that pertains to that. Lord, help us always to be ready to give a defense or an answer. And I pray that, Lord, as we investigate uh, topics of Scripture, Lord, help us to be teachable and to have teachable spirits. Help us to be loving, kind, and compassionate, to speak the truth in love, but always to speak the truth. And, Lord, I just pray that you'd help us today as we honor you, that you'd help us to be fixed and focused on you and your word, and we ask that you'd meet with us and accomplish your will and purpose It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Perhaps no doctrine has as much diversity of belief and practice as this doctrine, the doctrine of the head covering. Now you are probably asking, or you may be asking, first, what is this doctrine? And secondly, what does this have to do with our text in 1 Peter chapter number 3 and verse number 15? Well, I'm going to answer both questions. Give me a little bit of time. Now, the doctrine of the head covering is based out of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verses 2 through 16. The next question that you may ask is, well, why aren't we in that passage of Scripture this morning? That's a great question. We will get there, I promise, but not today. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, the general view amongst what is commonly referred to as Sovereign Grace Baptist is that Paul is teaching that a woman must wear a secondary or external object to cover her head. Usually it's a small cloth object, 
that is placed on the top of the head. It could be a hat or a veil. Now, as you know, that is not what we practice here at Tabernacle Baptist Church. Your next question should be, well, what does the Scripture teach? What does the Bible have to say? We want that to be the basis for this study. Therefore, we are entering today into what I perceive to be and hope to be, if I've judge the leadership of the Lord correctly, a series of messages on this topic, the head covering. The title of this series is A Forensic Investigation into the Head Covering. Now, legally, the word forensic refers to every type of proof that is legally presented at a trial that is allowed by a judge for which the purpose of is it is intended to convince the judge and or jury, whoever the trier of fact is, of the alleged facts that are material to the case. You've heard the term forensic science. We're talking about forensics. Webster's 1828 dictionary describes the word forensic this way. That which elucidates and enables the mind to see truth. Proof arising from our own perceptions by the, by the senses or from the testimony of others or from inductions of reason. Is that not what we want when we try to figure out what God is teaching? We come to the Word and we use our senses to rightly divide the Word of God, we hope to uncover the meaning that God is conveying to us. So I think it's right that we conduct a forensic investigation into the head covering. Now, I will tell you this. A more appropriate or accurate title to the series would probably be this. What does 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verses 2 through 16 actually teach? That would be a more appropriate title. Well, why am I not using that title? Well, I use the term head covering to clearly identify the topic. I know and understand that it is our intent as a church to post this series of messages on our sermon audio account. Therefore, when somebody searches for head covering, I would like for this series of messages to come up. Now, I aim, and my aim for this study is to take the evidence from Scripture and arrive at a conclusion. Just like we would in a trial, where the, the prosecution would put on their case and the defense would put on their case, and the jury or the judge, whoever it is that's the, the fact finder, would listen to the evidence and then arrive at a conclusion, and hopefully a right and proper conclusion. That's what we want to do. Now to accomplish this, this series will be broken into four different parts. At least that's my intention. That's the way that I've framed it as I've worked on this through really the past year. Today is part one. 
So what is the title of the message today? Well, we're talking about a forensic investigation into the head covering. This is part one, which is an explanation for the study. In other words, why are we even talking about this? Why are we studying this? I want to lay the groundwork today for the rest of the study and explain what led me to preach and teach this series. Now I warn you that there's going to be a great deal of detail, minutia, and definitions in the messages. I apologize, but it is necessary for us if we really want to be Bible students and we really want to delve into this topic, then it has to be that way. We must be detailed. We must get into the minutia of what the Scripture has to say. I also want to point out, and I've already alluded to this, that these sermons, at least it's our intent, will be posted on sermon audio. So at times during the message, it will appear that I am not really talking to you, but I am addressing someone else other than you. And that appearance will be correct. You will have rightly deduced that. Because my intent is to offer up an explanation not only to you, but to anyone that might be listening to this, regardless of what their view of what 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 verses 2 through 16 teaches. Now this finally brings us to our text verse. What on earth does this text verse have to do with a forensic investigation into the head covering? And in particular, part one, an explanation for the study. Well, in our text verse, Peter is laying down a foundational truth. That truth is this. We must be able to explain. We must be able to articulate to others what we believe. I've said it, I don't know how many times in the ministry. If you say you believe something just because your church or your preacher or your husband or your wife believes it, and you can't explain why you believe it, you don't really believe it. We must study the scripture and be able to explain and articulate why we believe something. And that belief must be based upon the Holy Scripture. Now, I understand in verse number 15 that Paul is primarily writing about explaining our salvation and all that is involved in that, right? Read verse 15 with me again. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. In other words, glorify God for His holiness. He's, again, Peter is referencing Isaiah chapter number 8 and verse number 13. Consecrate the Lord. Set the Lord apart. Glorify Him for His holiness and for who He is. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. What is the hope that is in you? The hope that is in you is that you are saved by the grace of God because of what Jesus Christ did on your behalf. We ought to be able to articulate that. We ought to be able to explain 
why we're saved and how we're saved. We don't need to be theologians and use a bunch of different terms, but we ought to be like that demonic man of Gadara when he wanted to stay with the Lord, and the Lord said, no, you go home to your friends and your family, and you tell them what great things God hath done to you and for you. We ought to be able to explain why we believe we are saved. And I understand that that is primarily what Peter is writing about here. Yet I also understand that there is an application that applies to every Bible belief that we hold. That we ought to, yea, we must be able to explain and defend what we believe. If you cannot explain and defend what you believe, you probably don't believe it very tightly. You probably don't hold on to it very tightly. Now, having said that, as we start this series, this is part one, an explanation for the study. I want to explain why I believe I have been led to conduct this study. And there are three factors, three factors that have led me to this study. Here they are. First of all, I offer a preliminary proffer of earnestness. I'll explain what I mean by that. The second factor is I believe that there is a problematic emphasis on this doctrine. And then the third factor is I believe that there is a perception of egotism that is involved in defending this doctrine. Now, don't tune me out. Don't turn off the audio on sermon audio if you do intend to listen to this. Bear with me. An explanation for our study. The first factor that I want to get into is I want to uh, cover a preliminary proffer of earnestness. In other words, I present to you this factor. I do not want the purpose of the study to be misperceived. I do not want to misrepresent the purpose of our study. I am not angry at anyone. Well, I'm angry at people, but not about this, okay? I don't think you can be a Christian in America and not be angry, okay? I'm just, you know, uh, be angry and sin not, okay? But I'm not angry about this. I'm not angry at anyone. I'm not grinding an axe. I'm not trying to get you to believe what I believe. And I'm not trying to, uh, to, to shift the focus of what is really being spoken about in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. Now, as I begin by this preliminary proffer of earnestness, I want to go back to our text verse in 1 Peter chapter number 3 and verse number 15. And I want to see some elementary truths that Peter reveals to us in this verse. First of all, God commands us to be able to defend what we believe. He commands us to be able to defend what we believe. Why do you study the scriptures and try to share it with others if you can't defend what you believe? You would be like the person that Paul wrote about in the book of Ephesians, who chapter number 4, who is tossed about with every wind of doctrine. 
We're not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to study the scriptures and know what we believe and defend what we believe. God commands us to be able to defend what we believe. Does he not write in verse number 15 that we are to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh? So God commands us to be able to defend what we believe. Now, here's the thing. Before you can defend what you believe, you have to know what you believe, and you have to know why you believe it. If I were to say this morning, Brother, why do you believe in the ordinance of baptism? Why do you believe that we dip and we don't sprinkle? Why do you believe that somebody must be a scriptural candidate for church baptism? Would you be able to explain these things? You should have a knowledge of what you believe about the Bible church ordinance of baptism. So, God does command us to be able to defend what we believe, but first, we have to discover what is the right biblical interpretation. When I come to a passage, I must apply sound and I'm going to use a term here that we're not going to really get into today, but we will next week, or the week after, rather. We must apply sound hermeneutical principles. We must. We have to discover what is the right biblical interpretation. So I pose these questions to myself. When I mention these things, where, where I'm, 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 I'm giving you a preliminary proffer of earnestness, I'm telling you this is what I've done. It's what you should do. It's what anybody listening should do. To discover what is the right biblical interpretation, we should ask these types of questions. Do I have it right? Am I correct in my interpretation? Am I only going by what I have been taught by others? Have I really studied the scriptures to find out what the Bible says? Am I relying primarily on what men have written and what has been historically practiced? There's a lot of people that form the basis of their belief on what a Baptist author wrote a hundred years ago. I'm all for consulting what our Baptist progenitors believed, but I don't believe what I believe because they believed it. I believe what I believe, at least that is my earnest desire, to believe what I believe because I believe this is what the Bible teaches. Am I guilty of reading into the text what I want it to say? As opposed to reading the text and allowing the Holy Spirit to teach me what it actually says. Could I be wrong? We don't like to think about that, do we? Could I be wrong? You know, there have been areas in my life as a Christian and, and as a pastor that I have been wrong in. And I don't believe the way that I used to believe. I won't go into those areas. I'm not talking about major fundamental truths. I'm talking about areas of practice and standards and things like that where, you know, 20 years ago I was in one position and now I'm in a, another not because I'm trying to please people or because it's it's uh, it, it's it's more uh, pleasing to to 
to me as to be able to get along with people, but it's because what I've looked at at the Scriptures, I say, well, you know, I really don't see that the Scriptures say that, and I always thought this. Could I be wrong? I want to tell you, and I say this not to, uh, to puff myself up at all, but to simply say that I have attempted with every fiber of my being to discover what is the right biblical interpretation of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verses 2 through 16. I have studied massive amounts of Scripture. I have listened to almost 20 messages on sermon audio on this topic. You say, I didn't know there was 20 messages out there. There's more than 20. And there's a lot of them that I started to listen to, and I said, yeah, this is not, it's a waste of time. Okay, so, so, and I say that not because they disagreed with what, what I believe or was trying to see what the Bible teaches, but because the way it was presented and the focus. I have read an exorbitant amount of secondary source material. When I say secondary source, what's our main source? Our main source is the scripture. Okay, in, in the legal field, the main source is a, is a, for instance, would be a Supreme Court ruling. If I want to know what the Supreme Court said about the Second Amendment, I would consult the Heller case, which the Supreme Court decided in about 10 years ago now. Okay? But there are secondary sources where men and women have written their opinions about what the Supreme Court wrote in their, uh, in their opinion and in their ruling. I like to consult secondary sources, but you know what the main source is? The Supreme Court rule. Well, guess what? This Bible is the main source. Yet, I have also consulted secondary sources. I have read an exorbitant amount of secondary source material, articles that people have written, historical references about what they did at this time and that time. I've read every commentator, I think, that you can find on the topic. So I have attempted to discover what is the right biblical interpretation. It's not like I said, okay, this is what I believe and I'm going to do a series on what I believe, and I'm going to find out what I can to support me. Anybody that does that is not a serious Bible student, and they're not really looking for the truth. So we're, 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 give, we're, 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 we're giving you a preliminary proffer of earnestness. God commands us to be able to defend what we believe, but to do that we have to discover what is the right biblical interpretation, and then secondly we have to defend what we believe to be a right biblical interpretation. Why are you a Baptist? Because you believe the doctrines that you believe Baptists historically have believed. And of course, we understand Baptist history, I trust. We, weren't, we didn't always have the name Baptist, right? We, that name came from Anabaptists, and the Anabaptists were not the first Baptists. You go back and you look at all the different terms, the Henricians, the Paulicians, the Albigenses, the Waldenses, and on and on and on of our Baptist progenitors. You're a Baptist because when you look at churches today, you say, you know, Baptists preach and teach what I believe the Bible most clearly teaches and preaches, and thus you're a Baptist. Don't ever be ashamed of the name Baptist. Don't run from that. Don't take the name Baptist off of your church building because you don't want to offend anybody. Be proud 
by the grace of God as to what God has led you to believe by His grace. I do not apologize for being a Baptist. If I were a Methodist, I'd cry. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I would I would defend Methodism because I'd be a Methodist, right? And so so God he he calls us and commands us to be able to defend what we believe. We have to discover what is the right biblical interpretation. And then we're to defend what we believe to be a right biblical interpretation. That isn't mean-spirited. It isn't coarse or 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 against good social conduct. We believe what we believe and we should be able to defend what we believe. God expects it of us. Now, Notice what Peter writes in our text verse in verse number 15. We've alluded to this multiple times. He says in verse 15, And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you. Now, you see that word answer in your Bible? Did everybody see that? Okay, I'm not, I'm not making that up. The word's there, answer. In the Greek... And I'm going. I'm giving you definitions from Thayer's Greek lexicon. There are multiple other references that we will allude to in our study in these series of messages. But I'm using Thayer's Greek lexicon to define the word answer, and it literally means a verbal defense, a speech in defense of, a reasoned statement or argument. Do you know what the Greek word is? In verse number 15, it is apologia. Apologia. You might guess that we get the word apology from that Greek word. It isn't talking about or using it here in a sense where we are saying we are sorry for something. When we apologize, you know, I run into you, you're coming into the store and I'm going out and I run into you, knock you back a little bit, I would say, oh, I'm very sorry about that. I didn't mean to do that. That's a that's an apology where we're saying we're sorry for something. That's not the meaning or use of the word here. It literally means to make a defense of. There is an entire study referred to as apologetics. Have you ever heard of apologetics? Apologetics, which comes from the Greek word literally speaking in defense of. It is the religious discipline of defending religious doctrines, are you ready for this? Through systematic argumentation and discourse. I am a prosecutor for St. Clair County, Illinois. When I go to court at a trial or any other type of hearing, I represent the state. And you know what I'm doing? I'm arguing on behalf of the state. There's a defense attorney who is arguing on behalf of their client. It's an adversarial system. But it doesn't have to be a mean-spirited system. It doesn't have to be a hateful system. It doesn't have to be a name-calling system. It's simply, I'm making your argument, or I'm making my argument. Some people do want to make our argument for us, okay? That, that, was, that was a planned slip. Not really, not really. But I'm making my argument, the defense counsel's making their argument, and the judge determines what he or she's going to go with. I don't always agree with the judge's uh, decision, and yet I never say to the judge, Judge, you're wrong. That's a terrible ruling. I'm quitting and going home and folding up my tent, and, and you're all a bunch of hypocrites. No, I say to the judge, I always end every proceeding with the judge by these words. Thank you, Your Honor. 
They rule against me. Thank you, Your Honor. I conduct myself with decorum in class, and I can still argue vigorously for my position representing the state of Illinois and the people of St. Clair County. Do you understand that? Do you understand that in defending biblical truths, we can and must do the same? The term apologetics derives from this Greek word, apologia. Now, in classical Greek, in the classical Greek legal system, the prosecution would present what is called the categoria or the accusation or charge. The defendant replied with an apologia or his or her defense. The apologia was a formal speech or explanation to reply to and rebut the charges levied against the defendant. Socrates' apologia is, is one of those famous examples, and it's documented in Plato's apology. Do you know that four times in Scripture, Paul defended himself where the same Greek word is used? I'm saying that this Greek word is used in multiple occasions where Paul used it, but four times specifically when he defended himself against the tax. One word, one time it's, it's translated in our English Bible's answer. Do you remember when Timothy wrote, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, in my first answer, no man stood with me. The word answer is apologia. When he's giving a defense of himself. And then how about this in Acts chapter 22 and verse number 1, where the Bible writes, Luke wrote, men, brethren, and fathers... Hear ye my defense, which I now make unto you. The word defense is apologia. It is his argument stating his case. Of all the people on earth, as God's children, we should be able to defend and discuss what we believe without getting in the mud. We ought to be able to conduct ourselves with civility and class and decorum in discussing, and are you ready for this? If need be, disagreeing on scriptural topics. We must. We must. Now, God commands us to be able to defend what we believe. But secondly, we're... we're, we're giving you a preliminary proffer of earnestness. Secondly, God commands us to have the right demeanor and deportment in making our argument. He commands us to have the right demeanor and deportment in making our argument. Notice that Peter points out that when we are asked about the hope that is within us, when we make our defense, when we make our argument, he points out that we are to respond with what? meekness and fear read it with me let's read the whole verse verse 15 but sanctify the lord god in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear we have studied the character trait of meekness it is power under control the greek word here that is uh, translated meekness in our english bibles literally means mildness or humility Humility. Huh. Wouldn't humility be a great thing in politics? I want to explain to you why I think this is the best path for the country, and I want to do it with some humility instead of calling my opponent all these different names. 
in getting in the mud. We ought to conduct ourselves with the right demeanor and deportment as we make our arguments. We not only should know what we believe and why we believe it and then argue to defend that, but we got to do it the right way with meekness and fear. The word fear here literally means terror or reverence. We ought to have such a high regard for God, as Peter writes, that we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. We consecrate Him and lift Him up. And if we're seeing ourselves as His servants, whatever I do, I am accountable for before Him. He sees and He knows. Therefore, I ought to make my defense, make my argument with the right demeanor and the right deportment. I desire to defend the position that I believe the Bible teaches, my position, if you will, with meekness and fear. Not with arrogance. Not by saying to you, I have nailed this down and I have the truth and if you don't agree with me, you are a wayward Christian. That is not meekness and fear. That might be meekness and fear where there are fundamental Bible issues that are very clear. This is not one of those issues. I have many preacher friends and friends that hold an opposing view that I hold. You you know this. I do not mean in this series or this study to come across with arrogance or superiority. I've figured it out. And once you attain to my level of intellectual, scriptural ability, you'll be where I'm at. God, I believe God would strike me dead if that were my attitude. I do not intend, and I do not mean to come across with arrogance or superiority, but rather want to exhibit humility and the fear of the Lord, knowing that I'm just a sinner saved by grace, that I am now better than anyone else. Paul said he was chief of sinners. I think every believer that's been touched by the grace of God believes they are chief of sinners. And yet we're saved by the grace of God and where the new man dwells within us and we're able to read the Bible and by the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ be able to rightly and properly interpret Scripture. So I do not mean to come across with arrogance or an air of superiority. I do mean. I do mean to vigorously defend what I believe the Scriptures teach. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay if we disagree. It's okay if you don't see it my way. We're still brothers and sisters. If you believe that you should wear an external head covering, I will not judge you. You ought to do what you have studied the Scriptures and the Spirit of God has led you to do. Who am I to tell you not? I don't judge you if you believe that you should wear an external head covering. You should do as you see fit in the sight of God. By way of illustration, I've already talked about it, but when I have a trial, it is my goal to treat opposing counsel with decorum and respect and battle it out in the courtroom and at the end of the day shake hands and have a mutual respect for one another. There's no reason why we should be getting down in the mud and 
in having personal animosity. If that's true with lost people, how much more so with God's people? So God commands us to have the right demeanor and deportment in making our argument. And then thirdly, as we're, we're providing you a, 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 a proffer of earnestness, thirdly, God commands us to study Scripture when we are confronted with an opposing view. God commands us to study Scripture when we are confronted with an opposing view. You must now know by now that I do not believe that 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 teaches that a woman must wear a secondary or external head covering. And when I say a secondary or external head covering, I don't mean that as a pejorative. I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that it is a secondary or external head covering other than her hair. And even those that disagree with my view do say that the hair is given for a covering, but there's also a secondary covering that must be used. So I don't mean this in a, in a mean-spirited way. It's just a description. I want to say here that I am making a plea for you, as well as anyone else that might be listening on Sermon Audio, to indulge me. To simply listen to what I have to say. If I am guilty of offering up a, 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 a twisted view of Scripture, then you make your determination and your judgment. But you listen and you hear what has to be said. Listen to what I have to say. Are we not, as God's people, called to study the Scriptures and to listen to Scripture teaching? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That means to rightly dissect the word of God to come to a correct meaning. This is what we're supposed to do. You're not supposed to just take my word for it. You're not supposed to just take uh, J.R. Graves' word for it, or A.W. Pink's word for it, or John Gill's word, or Charles Spurgeon's word. You're not supposed to just take words for it. You're supposed to get into the scriptures and see, hey, what he is saying and what he wrote, is that true? Is that not what the Bible says in Acts chapter 17, verse 11? These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. How foolish would I be to not listen to defense counsel's argument at court? How foolish would that be? You know, there have been defense attorneys that have made arguments to me and they've been sound legal arguments. And do you know that I have actually dismissed cases? I could name two right now that I'm thinking off the top of my head. Defense attorney wrote up a motion, sent it to me, and said, Hey, here, what do you think of this? Wow, you're right. You're right. You can't charge this guy with this. I dismissed charges. Is that not what we should be doing? What is honest and just and right? I'm going to read you a quote from Brother Doyle Thomas. I think you know Brother Doyle. I knew Brother Doyle. He's going on to be with the Lord. Brother Doyle wrote uh, this booklet, God Has Ordained Headship. Uh, Brother Glenn and Sister Ronnie gave me this booklet, I don't know, probably 30 years ago. I'm going to be referencing this booklet in our study, right? And I, and I want to read what Brother Doyle wrote on pages 2 and 3 of this booklet, okay? He, he wrote this. For those of you who hold opposing views on this subject, may I ask you to think back to the instruction that you received 
that led you to the position you now hold. Please, dear brother, bear my presumption for a short season. To be taught a certain thing by other men does not of itself render the thing to be correct. To hold to a position that the Bible does not teach is to exhibit the self-will of man. And it tends to bring reproach upon our dear Lord and upon His precious churches. And it is from His precious churches that His chosen bride is to be taken. Do you and I really want to know what God's Word teaches about this matter? Are we able to lay aside our prejudices and earnestly contend for the faith as once delivered to the saints? If we do want to know the truth, and if we are willing to approach the problem with an open mind, a willing mind, then it must be acknowledged that it was grace that enabled us to do so. May God be pleased to grant such grace to each of us now. Could I say that any better? By the way, you do know that Brother Doyle held an opposing view that I hold. But his plea is a proper plea. Listen to the argument. Study the scriptures. Ask God for guidance. That's a right thing. Now, we've been all this time on the first factor. A preliminary proffer of earnestness. I wanted to explain myself. Why are we studying this? And I wanted to lay the basis for these other two factors. The second factor as to why we want to study this is, very simply, I believe that there's a problematic emphasis on this doctrine. A problematic emphasis. Not a problematic emphasis on biblical headship, but a problematic emphasis on Paul's passage to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. I do believe that this is overemphasized in a dramatic way. I want to explain what I mean by that. I first of all begin by my own observations of what I believe to be a problematic emphasis. There are some people that make this doctrine a test of fellowship. If you do not believe this way, you cannot be our pastor. If you do not believe in an external, a secondary head covering, you cannot come and preach at our church. You cannot preach at our Bible conference. That is a problematic emphasis. I'm just going to say this. Could it be that churches don't have pastors because of the criteria that they've selected? You will not accept a pastor who does not hold your view on the head covering. Of all of the topics, that is the topic, or one of the topics that you're willing to die on the hill for. That is a problematic emphasis. I'm giving you my view. I'm telling you what I believe. Submission to pressure. If you're attending our services... My wife and children have been to a church where they were approached by another woman in the church who tried to get my wife and daughters to put on a head covering. Boy, that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable at all, does it? And how about this? 
Those that signal that a woman is of loose moral character and unfaithful to the Lord if she doesn't wear an external head covering. Now, some of you are looking with shocked faces. I'm going to read you some quotes in a moment so you'll know I'm not making this up. Okay? So these are my own observations. I've seen this. Now, I do want to say, that I, so that I'm not painting with the broad brush, there are many who believe in the external or secondary head covering that are not this way. They're very kind and loving and do not hold it as a test of fellowship. But there are some. I want to next move into objections to this problematic emphasis. I want to offer you some objections so that you don't just think that I've dreamed this up and that I'm opposed to this doctrine, and because I'm opposed to this doctrine, I don't believe that there should be emphasis placed on it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I believe that there's a problematic emphasis. And here are are my objections that I believe would show that there is a problematic emphasis on this doctrine. First of all, this doctrine is not a Baptist distinctive. It is not. Brother B.H. Carroll defined, I believe, rightly so, what a Baptist distinctive is. He wrote, The distinctive principles of the Baptists are those doctrines or practices which distinguish us from other Christian denominations. That is not to say that others haven't, or at some point, perhaps even now, hold some of the doctrines that are Baptist distinctive. But I'm telling you that this doctrine is not a Baptist distinctive. It is not. I have searched, I don't know how many Baptist confessions of faith. In fact, I consulted Lumpkins, William Lumpkin's Baptist Confessions of Faith. Brother Jim, I think you bought that book when we were down at uh, the conference uh, in, in April. It's an excellent book. It's got 43 Baptist Confessions of Faith. And do you know in all 43, I looked at all 43 of them. None of them ever mention an external or secondary head covering. They don't even talk about the head covering. It is not a Baptist distinctive. In fact, the Philadelphia Confession of Faith of 1742 is a very influential confession of faith, and it's very detailed. It contains 34 chapters with untold paragraphs in each chapter. It is very detailed. Chapter number 22 of the Philadelphia Baptist or the Philadelphia Confession of Faith is entitled of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. It consists of 8 paragraphs. None of them mention an external or even the hair head cover. They don't even mention it. Chapter 27 of the Philadelphia Confession of Faith is entitled of the Church. This chapter has 15 paragraphs but not one mention about anything of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verses 2 through 16. Now, there are separate chapters that the confession covers. Here are some of the sundry areas that are covered. Of singing psalms, of lawful oaths and vows, of laying on of hands. So they mention those areas, but not 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verses 2 through 16. What I'm saying, and I'm not saying it in a mean-spirited way, I'm simply saying that this is not a Baptist distinctive. 
This is not mentioned in the Waldensian Confession of Faith of 1120. I've read it. It's not mentioned in the London Confession of Faith of 1689. I've read it. It's not mentioned in the New Hampshire Confession of Faith of 1833, which serves as the basis for our Confession of Faith and most other Baptist Confessions of Faith. In fact, this doctrine was historically and is modern-day practiced by Presbyterians, Mennonites, Amish, and Muslims. Now, what does that prove? The only reason that I'm mentioning this is to say that this is not a Baptist distinctive. There's a problematic emphasis on this doctrine. It's not even mentioned in Confessions of Faith of our Baptist progenitors. Secondly, there is not a preponderance of scriptural attention given to this doctrine. The word preponderance, I use it here to mean superior weight, force, influence, numbers, or that which prevails. There is not a preponderance of scriptural attention given to this topic. There is one passage of scripture that deals with this topic. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verses 2 through 16. Now, do we just throw it out and we don't need to understand what it teaches? No. But it certainly doesn't deserve a problematic emphasis if the scriptures don't give it that emphasis. There are many more practices that could receive our focus. There are. And I don't mean to be trite or silly this morning, but I, I'm simply making a point that there's not a preponderance of scriptural attention given to this topic. Do you know that five times in the New Testament we are commanded to greet or salute one another with a kiss? We don't do that, and there's reasons that we don't do that, but there's five different locations where that's mentioned. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, it is clearly communicated that eating should be done in our homes. Now hold on to your seats. I'm not espousing that we shouldn't have lunch together in the building. I'm not saying that. Although that is a view that I used to hold. Okay, I'm not saying that. What I'm doing is I'm drawing a parallel with the emphasis that is given to this doctrine versus what else is not emphasized. Now, I'm going to tell you in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, you can read that there are two separate verses that say that if we're hungry, we ought to eat at home. It clearly says that. Now, I believe that Paul is dealing with an improper practice of the love feast, which was a cultural issue, and that's why I don't believe it's wrong for us to have a meal together. But the point is this. Why isn't there emphasis given to that where Paul is very clear and says... If any man hunger, let him eat at home. There's a problematic emphasis. Now, I'm going to get in trouble here, uh, as if I weren't already in trouble. There are multiple scriptures that deal with how we are. You, you, you'll, you'll get this, and you're tired of hearing this. Okay, You're probably going to tell me to shut up. There are multiple scriptures that deal with how we are to treat our body. Not only what spiritually goes into our bodies, but what physically and materially goes into our bodies. We are not supposed to be the epitome of self-indulgence. We're not. We're supposed to be temperate and in self-control. You think that's important to the Lord, where it said glorify God in body and in spirit? You think that's important to the Lord? Yet, 
When's the last time you heard preaching on that outside of this church? I'm just giving you a few areas where I'm telling you that there is not a preponderance of scriptural attention given to this subject. I believe, personally I believe, you can disagree with me. I believe that there's a problematic emphasis on this. It's not a Baptist distinctive. There's not a preponderance of scriptural attention. And it is not a church ordinance. This is not a church ordinance. Some people treat this as though it is a church ordinance. It is not a church ordinance. Brother Davis Huckabee, who wrote the ordinances of the church, wrote this. And, and, and by the way, when I use these definitions, it's because they're able to word them in a way that I don't think I could do any better. Okay? Brother Davis Huckabee wrote the, in, in the ordinances of the church, An ordinance is an outward institution appointed by Christ by positive precept to be observed by all his people to the end of the age, commemorating an essential gospel fact and declaring an essential gospel truth. You know that scripturally we believe there are two church ordinances. You know what they are. You know that they're baptism and the Lord's Supper. And you know that there are multiple passages in scripture that deal with these two ordinances. There isn't just one passage of Scripture that tells us that as a New Testament church, we ought to practice the ordinance of baptism. There isn't just one passage, 1 Corinthians 11, that deals with the topic of the Lord's Supper. There are multiple passages that deal with these ordinances. Historically, baptism and the Lord's Supper are the only two ordinances practiced by Baptists. In fact, I want to say this. We're arguing, are we not? We're making a defense. I could argue, I won't because I don't believe this, but I could argue that there's a better case for foot washing being an ordinance than the external or secondary head covering. I could argue that. And the reason I could argue that is because it is Christ that implemented foot washing, and it is Christ that gave a positive precept to his disciples and 1 Corinthians, or not 1 Corinthians, but John chapter number 13, verses 1 through 17. There are 17 verses dealing with this topic as opposed to 15 dealing with the head covering. And Christ, check me out on this. Christ emphatically says that to his disciples, ye ought to do this. He says, ye should do this. So there could be a case made that foot washing is a more proper ordinance than the head covering regardless of what you believe about it. Now, I don't, I don't espouse that. I will tell you that in Lumpkin's Confessions of Faith, Baptist Confessions of Faith, the Dordrick Confession dated 1632, article number 11, enunciates their belief that foot, foot washing is proper to be practiced. Now, for your sake, you're never going to wash my feet. Okay? For your sake. Uh, I would not want you to get PTSD or any other thing that might come of that. Okay? We're not going to practice that. I don't believe that's a church ordinance. But I'm, I'm, I'm making an argument. I'm making an argument that there is a problematic emphasis. Now we move on, thankfully you say, to the third factor. There is a perception of egotism that is involved when it comes to the external or secondary head covering. Bear with me. I'm not making any accusations. I'm not being mean-spirited or anything like that. Of all the people on earth, God's people should be humble and loving. Should we not? I mean, is there any reason for God's people to be arrogant, 
prideful. Of course not. We, we, we belong to the Lord. And as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, what is it that you have that you didn't receive? We're blessed above all measure, right? And so what I mean to say when I say that there's a perception of egotism, I think that sometimes in our zeal to defend our position, we do not consider how what we are advocating for comes across. Some people call it bedside manners. We ought to be careful how what we say comes across. Do you know that you can say almost anything to anybody if you deliver it in the right way? I know that from my years of leading teams. I can tell you that. You can have the most uncomfortable conversations with somebody if you treat them with respect and dignity and you do it privately and you let them know about a problem. I've done it. I've experienced it. And then I've been on the receiving end of public lash, tongue lashings. And that doesn't go so well. right? You praise in public, you reprimand in private. That's a general guideline for a leader at any job that you have to practice sometimes in zeal you don't realize it but you're coming across as being egotistical and arrogant and conducting yourself with hubris here are some questions that we ought to consider these are questions for my brethren that disagree with me on this topic to consider And we've already talked about some of these, and these are questions that I would not ask anyone else to consider unless I first would also consider them. Do you ever consider that you could be incorrect? Do you consider and evaluate competing views or arguments? In other words, when's the last time that you listened to a competing view of what you believe? If you only listen to that which you believe, (laughs) you'll never hear the opposite side. Now, don't get me wrong. There are areas where we don't need to listen to the opposing view. I've got a book. I've I've showed you this book before. I've got a book in my library at home. It's got about 600 pages, about that thick, on why this person believes in conditional security. In other words, they don't believe in the eternal security of the believer, and they took the time. They they, they spent 600 hours. Forgive me. They wasted whatever time to write 600 pages trying to convince people that you're not secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't need to study that. That's a clear issue to me. I don't need to study somebody that's trying to convince me that Jesus wasn't virgin born. Okay? We're not talking about a foundational, fundamental doctrine here. We're talking about a doctrine that has in Scripture 15 verses dedicated to it and could come to people could come to different conclusions reading it and studying it. Okay? Would you admit the weaknesses? in problems with your point of view? Man, can you imagine again as a, as a prosecutor, you know, I've got a case going on February 20th, and it's a rape case. Can you imagine if I did not even look at the motions that the defense counsel has filed or listen to any of the arguments that the defense counsel is going to argue? Can you imagine being prepared to go to trial on something like that? I don't have to agree with them, but I can listen to them and see if they have any merit And if they do have merit, I can take that and do whatever is appropriate. Or I can say, yeah, I don't agree with you. I've considered all the weight of the evidence. I don't agree with you. Here's a question. Are you so dogmatic that you can't be taught? 
Are you so dogmatic that you know you're right and you will not listen to any opposing views? And again, I'm not talking about fundamental, foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. I'm talking about this doctrine. Is this your stance? My position is correct, and if you don't agree with me, then you are twisting Scripture. Is that your position? Because if that's your position, you got some problems. Look, if you're honest, anybody who reads 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verses 2 through 16, there are questions that arise. Regardless of what your view is, there are questions that arise that you have to answer that are not readily apparent. It can be a difficult passage. Do you understand? Do you understand? That because one does not ascribe to an external or secondary head covering, it does not mean that they reject the doctrine of biblical headship. It does not. Do you understand that others may have sincerely studied this topic and come to a different conclusion? Is your approach that, well, you disagree with me, therefore you must not have studied the Bible? Wow. Come on, beloved. Turn with your Bibles to Romans chapter number 14. Look at Romans chapter number 14. Romans chapter number 14, verses 1 through 4. By the way, I will let you know that I don't believe or intend that all the forthcoming messages on this topic are going to be quite as long as this one. This is the fundamental introductory message and there's a lot that I need to get out to lay the foundation for the rest of the study. Notice Romans chapter 14 verses 1 through 4. Him that is weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. The reason that I wanted to read these verses is to show that there are some people that are going to have opposing views to what you believe. You cannot take the approach that, well, they didn't study it out. They don't know what they're talking about. It is possible that somebody disagrees with you and has spent copious amounts of time studying the doctrine and have come to a different conclusion. They love you. You love them. There's no reason to judge them. There's no reason for it to be contentious. Yes, we can debate the topic, but at the end of the day, we be brethren. Can we agree on that? If we can't, we're no better than the Democrats and the Republicans today who tear each other down and won't listen to things that will help move our nation forward. They're only interested in ostracizing people. There are questions for us to consider. And then there are quotations that we must confront. I will include names and sources from what I'm about to read simply because I'm reading what they wrote, okay? I read you earlier a quote from Brother Doyle, and I in no way mean to defame Brother Doyle. He's gone on to be with the Lord, but I just want to read you some of the things he wrote. These are direct quotes. I'll show them to you from this booklet. God has ordained headship, okay? I want you to listen to this. 
This is on page number 16. She must cover her head with the hat or veil, for to do otherwise would dishonor her head, man, and mark her as one who walks about from the headship under which God has placed her. It would be as if she had been marked as an unfaithful wife. Page 16 and 17. If a woman be uncovered in the assembly, it is as if she were shaven. If she will not be covered, then let her also be shorn. Read verse 6 again. By the way, we're going to cover this in our study. Okay, Listen. If she will not submit to God-ordained headship, What's the, what's the inference? The inference is that if you don't wear an external head covering, you are not submitting to God-ordained headship. So therefore, if you put your head covering on when you come into the building and keep it on for the, amount, the length of the services and then take it off, that's more of a sign of your submission to ordained headship than the way that you behave the rest of the week. I'm not putting words in Brother Doyle's mouth. I'm reading you what he wrote. Okay? If she will not submit to God-ordained headship, then let her be marked so as to identify her as a rebellious and wanton one. If the Lord's churches are not in subject to Christ, then they are unfaithful to him. And this is represented by the women of the church as they appeared uncovered. So therefore, because our women don't wear an external head covering, our church is unfaithful to the Lord. When the Lord's churches are in submission to him, then it is represented by godly women having their heads covered. I'm only reading what was written. Okay? In June of last year, Darlene showed me a post that was on a number of Baptist church Facebook pages. It was liked by multiple Baptist churches, including one that we have very close friends and members of. Let me read you the quote. This is on 1 Corinthians 11. I'm reading this verbatim. On 1 Corinthians 11, Milburn Cockrell wrote this. Two symbols follow. One, the head covering for the woman, a symbol of her subjection to the man. Two, the Lord's Supper, a symbol of the death of Christ. There is no justification for accepting one and not the other. The two of them are traditions to be kept. It is the height of inconsistency to give the last part of the chapter a universal application for all churches of all time and then to limit the first part to a particular church for a particular period. This is to wrongfully divide the word of truth and to handle the word of God deceitfully. So if you study and come to a different conclusion, you are... You are handling the word of God deceitfully. Could I say this, and I mean this with all seriousness. If you think I am handling the word of God deceitfully, you are not my friend. I am not friends with people that claim that I am handling the word of God deceitfully. It's awful easy to write this stuff and post it. It's a little bit harder to say it to my face. And I will tell you, I've never had any of these men say this to my face, and yet they've written some very harsh things. Things that I would never venture to write or say. You know why? Because I don't think it. The fact that they think that I'm twisting scripture and handling the word of God deceitfully because I come to a different conclusion troubles me. 
it troubles me. So yes, there is a perception of egotism. I'm right and you're wrong. And you can't be right as long as you disagree with me. That is the height of egotism. Now look, I'm sure that it isn't intended to come across this way. I'm going to I'm going to take the high road, and I'm going to assume that that's not the intention. But you know what? That is the way that it comes across. All I did was read the words. You tell me if I'm twisting something. I say, I want to study this, and I want to answer these. And I want to make sure that what I believe is right and scriptural, not because Milburn Cockrell believed it or because Doyle Thomas believed it, but because God says it in his word. And if anybody disagrees with that statement, I pity you. <laughs> because you're simply following men and not God. And again, I mean no hurt. I mean no harm. It's been a long message. <laughs> I realize that. But I wanted to lay the groundwork for what we're going to cover. Today we looked at the introductory lesson on a forensic investigation into the head cover. We looked at this particular part, an explanation for the study. Three factors that led me to this study. I began by giving a preliminary proffer of earnestness. Secondly, I looked at what I believe to be a problematic emphasis. And then thirdly, I talked about a perception of egotism. God help us to love each other, to care for one another, to, yes, vigorously argue for what we believe, but to do it with meekness and fear meekness and fear always ready to give an answer studied up and ready to go but doing it with meekness and fear now i won't tell you what's about to come in our future studies but i will tell you we're going to get into these verses and uh, verse 2 through 16 of first corinthians 11 we're going to dissect them we're, we're going to we're going to study what it says and i'm going to admit to you where i think there are weaknesses in my argument and I'm going to present the other views as best I can, and I'm going to tell you what I think their weaknesses are. And then ultimately, at the end of the day, you know what? You're the jury. You decide. What is you're the, you're the trier of fact. What do I believe about this? Let me investigate the evidence and see what's been presented and pray to God for guidance and come down on what a right view is. And you know what? If you disagree with me, so be it. I love you. You do, what you, you do what you believe God wants you to do. Should that not be our approach? I pray that it is. And if I'm wrong as a church, you correct me. I submit to the Lord's church. This is topic we got to discuss, and we will.